Well, it was a blessed week in Vacation Bible School. Uh, appreciate everybody who served, and thank you for entrusting your children to us. It's always a good time and a pivotal time in the lives of young people, and uh, we're grateful to God to be able to have a strong Bible school and appreciate our students across the way. Pastor Isaiah had the middle schoolers and the team working over there, and that was a good week as well. And as Pastor Danny mentioned, I want to be sure that you're praying for our students this week as they go to camp. Uh, camp is also one of those times that's very impactful in the lives of young people, and we just pray God's hand will be on them, and it would be a productive week uh, spiritually for them, and appreciate your prayers and your support in that regard. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to look today at verses 6 through 8 in a message entitled, Finish the Race. Some of you who are runners and maybe marathoners or uh, extreme uh, runners have heard of the Barkley Marathons. It's an ultra-marathon race that's held each year in Morgan County, Tennessee. The course varies from year to year, but it consists of five 20-mile loops for a total of 100 miles. Uh, it's limited to a 60-hour period from start to finish with 67,000 feet of elevation changes up and down throughout the race. It's limited to 40 runners a year, and it always fills up. In total, 1,000 people have entered, and only 17 have completed the full distance in time in the race's history. Now compare that to the fact that almost 6,400 individuals have scaled Mount Everest. And more than 1,800 have swum across the British Channel. With a finish rate of 1%, this race that I'm referring to has been labeled by many as the world's hardest race. Most years, nobody finishes. But this year, there were a remarkable three people who finished. Participants are given a handout with directions, and they're able to use a map and a compass to find their way. One runner named Nikki Rain, who is a 40-year-old Australian who happens to be an assistant professor of education in Canada, completed one and a half out of the five 20-mile laps this year before succumbing. And she said, you don't come here to be victorious, you come to be humiliated. It's lonely out there, it's eerie. You have to be comfortable being inside your own head. Everyone comes back pretty broken. I want to make a spiritual parallel to this in terms of the Christian life being a race, not just any race, but being a marathon, and us needing to go the distance to finish the race and to finish it well. The athletic metaphors are used in a number of places in the scripture, and they remind us that in this marathon that we're running in the Christian life, there are many obstacles and peaks and valleys along the way. We are to go the distance, but if we're going to do that, we have to prepare ourselves so that we know what we're getting ourselves into. We have to pace ourselves so that we can continue on regardless of the difficulty or the dangers that we might face. And we have to persevere. In the first century, the Romans celebrated both the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games. Competitors would spend a year or more in preparation 
in physical training for these events. And Paul uses the world of athletics as an analogy for a believer's life of faithfulness. And he writes to Timothy to share what's on his heart, what his focus is. He's approaching the end of his life and his ministry. Paul is not taking credit for what has taken place. He is being reminded here, and he wants to tell Timothy of the importance of going the distance. But Paul knew full well that it was the grace of God that had empowered him to do so. He put up every effort that he had in the work of proclaiming the gospel to all peoples. So we pick up reading in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 6, and I'll read verse 6 and 7 as I begin. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close, or your translation might say, is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He makes this statement here, I have finished the race. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't finish their race or they don't finish their race very well for a number of reasons. Sometimes people lack clarity regarding their purpose in life. And they struggle to really understand how they fit in to what God's greater plan is in the world. And that's one of the things that discipleship does is discipleship helps us to focus and to understand how we fit into what God is doing and how we are to be about our Father's business. Sometimes the distractions of this life, which are the riches and the pleasures of this world, distract people. They have a love for the present age. They're entangled with the defilements and the sins of this world. And then sometimes there's a lack of intentionality where people just kind of meander spiritually. They know what's right. They have a desire in their heart to do what is right, but they really don't have a plan to live it out in a practical way. They don't really know how to apply what they're learning as followers of Jesus. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He's sitting in jail. He's waiting for his execution. He wants Timothy to feel the weight of the responsibility that uh, Paul had carried on his shoulders. And now he's wanting him to understand this. He's wanting him to understand the, the responsibility of faithful servants of Christ, that it's not going to be easy. And he's communicating these very important truths to him. Now, we find the idea of a drink offering for the first time in Genesis chapter 35. Jacob was poured out, uh, poured out a drink offering, as it was, before the Lord as a sacrifice. You remember right before the Lord changed his name to Israel. And in the Mosaic law, drink offerings could be a part of a sacrifice or an offering to the Lord. The pouring out of a drink offering is a metaphor as well. It points to the blood of Jesus that was poured out on the cross for our sins. Jesus referred to this in Luke chapter 22 when he instituted the new covenant. He picked up the cup of wine and he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' sacrifice fulfilled the need of a drink offering because his blood was poured out so our sins could be forgiven, so our sins could be washed away and we could be right with God. So this whole idea of being poured out is not half-hearted. It indicates something that is completely given with no reservation. 
The cup is emptied and it is presented to God. Paul, sensing the end of his ministry, compares his efforts to this wine that is poured out of a vessel on an altar. And one commentator wrote, in this sense, Paul is saying, the day is done, the meal is just about over, and I am being poured out unto God. Now, we are reminded in these verses of one reality and two directives. One reality and two directives. And the reality is this, life is limited. Life is limited. Note the phrase again, and the time for my departure is close, or it's at hand. The word Paul uses for departure was one that was used for the unyoking of an animal from a plow or a cart. It was also a word that was used for the loosening of the moorings of a ship so that the ship could set sail. At death, our earthly ship leaves the shores of this stormy earth and puts in at the port of heaven. In the Bible, death does not mean ceasing to exist, but rather it means a departure. It means a separation of the soul from the body. And what is clear in the scripture is that everyone will live forever somewhere. We will either live forever in heaven with God because we've repented of our sins and we've trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation and we've been reconciled to God. Or if we have gone our own way and rejected the grace of God and not wanted anything to do with the good news of Jesus, then we will spend eternity forever separated from God. Death marks the end of our labors and our toils in this life and a release from the limitations of our corruptible bodies. At death, the battle is over and we head home. You never know what your limit is, so you better be ready. There was an Old Testament scholar named Peter Craigie who set out to examine for himself the brevity of life. He wrote, life is extremely short, and if its meaning is to be found, it must be found in the purpose of God, the giver of all life. He said, recognizing the transitory nature of our lives is a starting point in achieving the sanity of a pilgrim in an otherwise mad world. Craigie wrote these words, interestingly, in 1983, in the first of three planned volumes on the Psalms in a commentary series. Two years later, he died in a car accident. He was 47 years old. In the short life, he bore witness to the breathtaking horizons of eternity. He bore witness to how embracing our, our mortal limits goes hand in hand with offering our mortal bodies to the Lord of life. And while we know that our earthly lives on this earth don't last long, we know that we need wisdom from God to be able to live them well, to be able to, to be faithful. And as a result of the fall of man and the judgment that followed, human lifespans were shortened. Several hundred years after the flood, Moses wrote, the length of our days is 70 years or 80. And if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Psalm 90 and verse 10. Now, just as a bit of a fact-finding uh, expedition, 
I looked at a three-day window last week in the Charleston Gazette obituaries in the online version. And from that three-day subset, that window that I looked at, there were 34 people total who had died. Of those 34 people, they ranged in age from 24 years old to 100 years old. There were 10 between their 20s and their 40s out of the 34. The average age, 66. A reminder to us that none of us know how long we're going to have, and we need to be ready. Did you know that last year, 67 million people died worldwide? That's a normal number for a normal year. If you do the math on that, that's 183,561 people every single day. So from 12.01 this morning, when it turned to the day that we are now in, until midnight tonight, there will be 183,561 people worldwide who will leave this life for the next. Job 14 in verse 1 says, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Now people try to ignore this the best they can. Six out of ten American adults do not even have a will or any type of estate planning at all. Somehow they think that if they ignore it, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen eventually. And this is a public service announcement, but if you're one of those six out of ten that don't have a will and you've not done any planning for the people coming behind you, you need to do it. It's your assignment. You want to leave everything in a mess so somebody else has to deal with it because you didn't have the time or take the time to order your affairs before you left this world? Just a practical little thing, but it's a reminder to us of how none of us like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like the reality of it. But yet here it is right in front of us. Life is limited. Psalm 39 and verse 5 says, You have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely everyone stands as a mere breath. Psalm 90 and verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So we know that we need wisdom to understand the brevity of life. This has to be learned. Learning to number our days will give us that heart of wisdom. And then James compares our lives to a vapor, like a fine mist, like a fog that burns off when the sun comes up with substance and leaves nothing behind. We need to learn to live with eternity always in front of us. I think Jesus felt the urgency of doing the will of God the Father while the opportunity still remained. He said in John 9 and verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. But then listen to what Jesus says. Night is coming when no one can work. Because life is limited, fear God and seek wisdom. Because life is limited, make the most of the time that you have. I think about the words of Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India in the first half of the 20th century. She said, we will have eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset to win them. And because life is limited, we got to live with heaven on our minds. Some of you may have heard the name Linda Ellis as it relates to a 
famous poem that she wrote in 1996 that went uh, pretty much across the world. And it's entitled, The Dash. And I think it'd be fitting for me to share it here. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left. That can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before, if we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read, when your life's actions are rehashed, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? Friends, life is limited, and we want to live it well for the glory of God. And then there's a directive here. Fight the good fight. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. He's looking back on his life. He knows the struggle, that the, the, the push and pull, and the effort that's been involved in following Christ and advancing the cause. And Paul knew very well that the Christian life is a struggle against the forces of evil. We battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. And this fight is to persevere against opposition and against temptation. It means to engage in conflict, much as in the athletic games or the military conflict that was a reality. And I think this is a deeply moving statement because earlier in the epistle, Paul reminds Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, the general, said many years ago, war is a terrible thing. And he's speaking, of course, of earthly wars. But he says, war is a terrible thing. But if you're going to get into it, you've got to get into it all the way. And I think there's some truth to that spiritually as well. That war is not pleasant. The conflict that we deal with is not pleasant. The troubles that we face are often not enjoyable. But if we step into this faith and we are looking to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith, then we have to be bold in that and we have to be willing to, to fight the good fight. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6 and verse 10 and following. He said, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And then here's what he says, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers of the darkness, and against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. He says, you better wake up, because it's a very real spiritual struggle between light and darkness, good and evil, heaven and hell, 
eternity and the now. And he says, for this reason, verse 13 of Ephesians 6, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist an evil day and having done everything to take your stand. You can be strong in the Lord's power and be protected by his armor in the spiritual realm if you will rely on what God has given you to defend yourself. J.C. Ryle wrote a piece entitled Soldiers and Trumpeters all the way back in the 19th century. He said the saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They go through the motions of attending religious services each week. But of the great spiritual warfare, its watchings and its strugglings, its agonies and its anxieties, its battles and its contests, of all this they appear to know nothing at all. If you are living a life of spiritual complacency and you're not actively pursuing your faith, seeking to grow in Christ, if you're not sharing your faith, standing up for what you believe in, you're probably not seeing a lot of conflict. And the reason you're not seeing a lot of conflict is because your life's flowing along pretty nicely with the rest of the world. Your values, your words, your motivations, what's important to you, are consistent with the world. So there's no, there's no conflict going on there. But the moment that you take your stand for Christ, you stand for truth, you engage in the fight, you're going to understand what you're up against. And I've got encouragement for you because you can fight the good fight in the security that you have in Jesus. This is not a call from God to fight on your own or in your own strength. We fight knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We fight the good fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are strengthening ourselves in the Lord and in his vast strength. We are fighting the good fight as we pray and we learn to engage at a spiritual level and to depend on God and to believe God and to follow him. And as we do these things, we're fighting this battle in prayer and we're doing it with truth. Time and again, Paul comes back to the idea of sound doctrine to show people the way. And we fight the good fight with an eye on eternity. We are patient and we stand firm because we know the Lord's coming is near. Now, Paul experienced it all. I, I won't go through everything that he went through. You know it if you're familiar with his story, but he was in prison and beaten and shipwrecked and hungry and cold and destitute and bitten by a snake. I mean, the man experienced everything you could possibly experience and still be alive. He withstood false teachers. He refuted slanderous attacks on his integrity and even attacks on his appearance. He was hard-pressed on every side, and none of it deterred him. Once he met Christ and once his life had been changed, he had a passion for the things of God. He wanted to make Jesus known. He wanted to fulfill God's mission for his life. And that should be the pattern of how our lives follow. And if we lack fervor and we, we lack energy in, in our faith and, and encouragement about what it means to follow Christ, we need to pray and ask God to take us out of the complacency. We need him to to move us off of neutral and get us moving forward so that we're doing something that matters for the kingdom. 
I think of the missionary Adoniram Judson who went to Myanmar in 1813 at the age of 25. Adoniram Judson would remain there for 37 years and end up dying on board of a ship in 1850. He only returned to America one time during those pioneer missionary days in 37 years. He preached the gospel for seven long years before he saw the first person come to faith in Christ. He wrote to the father of his first wife, Anne, asking for her her hand in marriage. I want you to really hear what he's asking. He said, I have now to ask, this Adoniram, speaking to Anne's father, whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of Burma, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. His words were not an exaggeration. She had a brief and painful life in Burma, racked by tropical disease and violence. And then he was falsely accused of being a British spy, tortured for three years in prison. And when Adoniram was put in prison for those years, you know what Anne did? Anne moved to a little shack near the prison gate so that she could see her husband more easily. And she died at the age of 36. Judson remarried in 1834, the widow of another American missionary there. After 11 years and the birth of eight children, five of whom survived to adulthood, she died. He returned to the United States and was remarried and returned again to the mission field. I share that story with you not to say that we're all going to endure that level of difficulty as we fight the good fight, but to remind us that hardship comes to us in a variety of ways. We might face temptation in this life, Sickness, financial concerns, broken relationships, persecution for living out our faith. I mean, you name it. And Jesus warned us that we would have trouble in this world. And I think one of the things that that brings weakness to people's lives as they seek to follow Christ is that they were never told the reality to begin with of what was coming when they do. People don't understand fully what spiritual warfare is and, and, and what it means to to walk with Christ and to fight the good fight. And that's the life he's calling us to, though, is to engage and to do so in his strength. And then there's a second and final directive. Keep the faith. He says very plainly here, I have kept the faith. To keep means to keep by guarding or to watch over. Paul's trust in Jesus did not waver. I'm telling you, from the moment this man encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus to his impending death, there's only one word that we could use to describe his faith, and that is solid. I mean, he was, he was solid. He was committed. He entrusted everything that he had to the Lord, and he kept the faith and the truth of the gospel, the heart of the faith that had been entrusted to him. And I think when he says he kept the faith, he means that he guarded the truth about Jesus that God had entrusted to him. And to keep the faith, you've got to know what you believe. Otherwise, you'll be confused and you'll be led astray by someone 
who's not teaching the truth. To keep the faith, we have to grow in Christ and not fall into complacency. And listen, I think it's a, I think it's a daily exercise. I, I don't think it's though as, as though we, we mark it out and say, okay, from this day forward, I'm going to follow Christ. Th- there is that point in our lives when we come to faith that that should happen. But then it's a renewal day by day because we know the struggle we're in. We know the battle. We know the enemy. And we look to Jesus. And Jesus looked to eternal glory in heaven to help him endure the cross. And I want to tell you what motivates us as we run our race is to remember God's faithfulness in the past to press forward as we look toward eternity with Christ. we got these spiritual markers along the way. If you've been a Christian any time at all, you can look back and you can say, in that season of my life, that time of my life when it was the darkest, when it was the most difficult, when I was experiencing the most opposition, when I didn't know where to turn, God was faithful. And when you look back at those spiritual markers in your life, it encourages you to keep pressing on And I believe that keeping the faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. And I think our spiritual lives should be marked out by the same type of determination that the rest of our lives are often marked out by. And let me me explain what I mean by that. Wayne Field wrote this little piece and he said, I wonder what would happen if we applied the same standards of loyalty to our Christian activities that we expect from other areas of our lives. And here's what he says. If your car starts once every three times, is it reliable? If the postman skipped delivery two or three times a week in an unpredictable way, is he trustworthy? If you don't go to work when you don't feel like it and you don't tell anybody and it's regular, are you a reliable employee? If your fridge stops working for a day or two every now and then, do you say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If your water heater provides an icy cold shower, is it dependable? If you skipped a couple of electric bill payments, do you think they would care? If you fail to worship God one or two Sundays a month, would you expect to call yourself a faithful Christian? This is a reminder of the fact that the spiritual and the secular are false, is a false dichotomy. It's all spiritual when you're following Christ. So the same dependability that you exhibit in your day-to-day life, if you're dependable, some of you might not be, I don't know. You ought to be if you're not. But if you're one of those dependable people in your daily life, shouldn't your spiritual life measure up to that? Shouldn't you be able to be counted on for Christ? Keep the faith. Keep moving forward as you keep the faith. Now I'm going to close, and I'm going to go now to verse 8. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Now, here's the connection. Faithfulness leads to heavenly rewards. 
there are five crowns that are mentioned specifically in the Bible. I don't have time to go into depth on each one of those, but it's the imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9, crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians, the crown of life in James chapter 1 and Revelation 2, the crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5 for the faithful pastor, and then the crown of righteousness here in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, specifically for those who love the appearing of the Lord. We can finish the race as we anticipate being in the presence of the righteous judge. And that can encourage us to want to live in light of that day. Now I want to draw something out here before I pray that I think is very important. Paul had been condemned by Nero, an evil man, an unrighteous judge in every regard. He stood condemned before Nero. The righteous judge, Paul knew this, the righteous judge, Jesus, would vindicate him when he stood before him. And the fact that we will stand before the righteous judge in that day should motivate us to live in this day. The understanding of what's coming in the future and the hope that we have, the victory that's already been won at the cross and through the power of the resurrection, which we now live by, we long for that day in the presence of the Lord. And in the meantime, we live in this day as faithful people who want to finish the race. Now listen to me very closely. There are a lot of people who fall by the wayside along the way. Some of them fall by the wayside because of their own sin and selfishness. Some fall by the wayside because they took spiritual attacks and were not prepared. Some fall by the wayside because they lose focus. There's any number of reasons why people do it. We want to finish the race. We want to finish it. Listen, I am determined not to hobble across the finish line. I want to go across that finish line with strength and with encouragement and with joy in the Lord and what he's done in my life. I want to give my very best. I want to be like Paul was. But Paul's saying, listen, I've poured out my life as a drink offering. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He knew the purpose for which he was saved. And we need to know the purpose for which we're saved. And then we need to live it. There's, there's no space for complacency and half-hearted Christian living. There, there's no place for lukewarmness in our spiritual walk with, with Christ. There should be a fervor about it, an excitement about it. And, and we ought to be encouraged every day that we wake up that we have a Father in heaven who loves us and who sent his Son to die for us. And that because of him, we can be forgiven and our lives can have a purpose now and forever. That ought to stir us up toward greater faithfulness to finish the race. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward the close of the service. You've been so attentive today. Thank you as we've had opportunity to celebrate the kids and vacation Bible school and now to hear from the Word. What might God be saying to you in your heart and life? Are you one of those that's been putting off and kind of ignoring the, just how brief life is? 
Friend, you better take hold of it because it is truly a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. We want to make the most of it in Christ. And may God help us finish the race well as followers of Jesus. But I know enough to know that in a group this size today, there are some who have never repented of their sins and come to follow Jesus in the first place. You know that if tonight your life were to end, you would not step out into an eternity with God because you've not made Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. I want to invite you today to repent and believe. You can come to Christ before you leave this place. Don't wait. Don't delay. Trust him. Father, we give this time now over to you. As you work in it, we'll give you the credit for any good that comes from it. May we live in light of that day so that we can be faithful in this day. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.